Hi there, I'm Peter Ludlow. I'm a professor of philosophy at Northwestern University and uh, today I'm going to talk about virtual communities, virtual culture, and virtual governance. And in doing this, I'm going to take a little bit of a walk on the wild side and uh, show you some of the fringier aspects of online uh, worlds. And I'm going to show that um, those uh, transgressive, fringy aspects of virtual worlds are actually very important because they lead to the formation of, of governance structures. Uh, the plan is the following. I'll start out with a little primer on virtual worlds and give you an example of Second Life. I'll say something about virtual communities. That is what I think they are. Uh, I'm going to say a bit about virtual cultures, like what is a virtual culture, give you a couple of examples of virtual cultures inside of uh, Second Life, for example. And then I want to turn to the topic of virtual governance. And uh, in addition to that, like how disputes are resolved in an online world. Well, uh, let's start with the virtual worlds. And in particular, I'm just going to talk about Second Life today. Um, the key thing to know or understand about Second Life is that it's basically about user-created content. And the user-created content begins with creating yourself in the world. That is, you are going to build an avatar, which is to be a representation of yourself in that world. And you have a broad range of tools by which you can do that beginning with your head. Uh, you can control uh, whether you have beady eyes or big eyes. You can control the size of your chin, the size of your ears, etc. The same thing applies to the stuff in the virtual world. That is to say, uh, you have the power to res certain primitive objects in there. Now, by res, I mean you just create the object by fiat. And by primitive object, I mean a basic geometric shape, like a cylinder, for example. So here you have a picture of me resing a cylinder inside of Second Life, and now I can take it, I can stretch it, I can twist it if I want to, and I can texture it using um, graphic images that I download from the internet, for the example. With the result that I begin with a simple cylinder like that, and I end up with something like this, which is a, a model of the Parthenon built from primitive objects. I wish I could take credit for this one, but a, a friend of mine built it for me. By the way, if you look way in the center of that, you'll see uh, that's that's me standing in the center of that. Now, user-created content means you can have sublime builds like this one, or you might even have ridiculous ones like this, which is a um, bathroom in a bar that I discovered inside of Second Life. Now, uh, so far, I've just shown you things that have to do with the eye candy of Second Life, the sort of fancy graphics. And I don't want you to get wrapped up in that, because that's a big mistake that almost everybody makes. They think that virtual worlds are about the stuff you actually see. But those things that you're building, those are just symbols, as it were, because they are there to sort of serve as catalysts for the formation of, of certain kinds of social groups that you're interested in forming. And this leads me to the question, or the topic, of virtual communities. And what do I mean by that? Uh, to a first approximation, we can think of a virtual community as a group of individuals that are spatially separated, but that nevertheless engage in a broad spectrum of shared social activities using non-face-to-face -face forms of communication. Now, um, the rise 
of internet-based social networking platforms has made the notion of virtual communities salient. But if you think about it, virtual communities predate the internet and even electronically mediated communication. So, for example, academic communities have, have long communicated through letters um, uh, and uh, other forms of, of written communication, journals, for example. And it's reasonable to say that um, certain robust communities have formed in that way. Now, I want to be clear that not every network of individuals counts as a community. So the same individuals could be in contact every day. But if the communication is just to conduct business, right, just, just doing business, then they're engaged in a, what I would call a narrow spectrum of shared activities. Likewise, some social networks could fall short of being communities if, if the focus of socializing remains narrow. Suppose you're, all you do is talk about lolcats. So until you're starting talking about lots of aspects of your everyday life, I would say uh, it doesn't necessarily rise to the level of a community. So graphical virtual worlds like Second Life are not the first virtual communities but they provide a lot of new tools to facilitate the growth of communities. So you get not just chat, but you get ways of expressing attitudes via virtual clothing, certain props that you create, and even certain kinds of rituals that are possible in these graphical worlds. And I'll give you some examples of these in a little bit. Um, let's uh, turn to virtual cultures, and here I just want to give you a couple of illustrations. First one I want to talk about involves a group of players that came into the Jesse region of Second Life, um, and basically established a, a little community of gamers there. Now what makes them interesting is that most of them came from another video game called World War II Online. Uh, most of them were off-duty U.S. military personnel, and most of them were from the South in the United States. Um, they, in effect, imported a lot of cultural norms and mores with them. Some of them came from the other video game. Some of them came from being in the U.S. Army. Some of them came from being where they came from geographically. I'm going to come back to these guys in a little bit. Uh, another virtual culture that has emerged inside of Second Life is what I would call Gorian culture, Gorian roleplay culture. Gore is a kind of role-play practice that's based on a series of science fiction novels that involve a planet where there are um, sexual masters and sexual slaves. Right? And so it's a kind of heavy-duty BDSM-type role-play set in a, in a medieval setting, as it were. And I say that this is a virtual culture and not just role play because the practices are very robust in here and um, people actually keep you know local newspapers of what's going on in there people keep uh, libraries with important documents and so forth um, very very robust culture and in fact I should point out that thousands, tens of thousands of people actually practice some form of, of Gorian roleplay inside of Second Life. In addition to these cultures, we also have what I would call griefer culture. What is a griefer? A griefer is somebody who's in a virtual world to ruin your day. Um, griefing could take uh, the form of this attack on a installation of the Big Brother television show inside of Second Life. 
uh, some griefer came in and, and basically uh, shot up everyone and lit fires for four hours because there was, in his words, no security whatsoever. Or it could take the form of this uh, somewhat more automated attack in which around Christmas of 2006, uh, the entire grid or a large region of the grid was, was attacked by thousands of red Santa-capped green penises, um, virtual penises, I should say, um, invading the area. My first encounter with Griefers involved a group inside of The Sims Online, another video game, uh, that was called Free Money for Newbies. And uh, these characters had set up a house in the welcome area, which they advertised services for people that came into the game and didn't know what they were doing. And of course, what their intent was, was to steal money from these people, to um, uh, humiliate them if possible, etc., uh, Second Life has uh, its share of organized griefing. Uh, some of these griefers come from internet sites like 4chan or the Something Awful forums. Um, one group in particular, the W Hats, uh, seemed to excel in um, using transgressive symbols and so forth as a form of griefing. So giant swastikas, giant penises, and so forth, and uh, certain builds that were of by nature um, transgressive. So, for example, uh, this attack or this reproduction of an attack on the World Trade Center. Or alternatively, there is uh, griefing of uh, the John Edwards uh, campaign headquarters back in the primary season of uh, 2008, it must have been. Now, what's interesting to me about these griefing groups is that griefers as individuals and also as groups serve as kind of viruses that enter into the body of the virtual community. And then what happens is that the virtual community ends up creating antibodies which are going to work against them. And I think it's in the creation of these antibodies that we begin to see the emergence of genuine indigenous virtual governance structures. In saying this, my point here is it would be wrong to think that governance in virtual world is going to come to you top-down from the game makers. It's not going to work that way. Um, sure, the game makers can't help themselves. They're going to be dabbling in the virtual world like Greek gods, because they have the power and they will use it. So if they see someone that they don't like causing trouble, they'll smack them around or ban them. If they have a friend who gets scammed by somebody, they're going to help out their friend. That's what they're going to do. Now, that's not necessarily productive, but it is also not a, a meaningful way of establishing governance inside virtual worlds. Norms and ideas of governance in a virtual world are going to be imported from different countries around the world, or at least from different regions around the world. It's going to come from different virtual worlds in cyberspace. So think of, think of the World War II online guys, right? They were coming from another virtual world, right? So they're bringing ideas about governance from there. They're bringing ideas of governance from their military background, and they're also bringing certain ideas from where they come from geographically, which is in the South and the United States. In addition to this, people are going to import ideas from fictional worlds. So think of the Gorians, for example, right? They're bringing in notions of governance, norms of behavior, from a world that doesn't even exist, from a fictional world. 
So what's going to happen is that these imported norms are going to collide in a kind of crucible inside a place like Second Life. And the result is going to be a kind of fusion of these different norms and attitudes and so forth. Well, one thing that you might get out of all of this, and one thing that we've gotten in response to griefers, is what I would call virtual paramilitary organizations. And my favorite example of this, my all-time favorite example of this, would be the um, Sim Shadow government, which emerged in response to some of the characters in the Free Money for Newbies uh, griefing group inside of the Sims Online. And the Sim Shadow government was an extremely robust organization, and I guess I could call it a paramilitary organization. If you look at its organizational chart, it consisted of an executive branch, a war department, and an intelligence branch. Each of these branches were uh, also extremely organizationally robust. So if you look at the uh, the model, sorry, the organizational chart for the intelligence branch, you get sort of some idea of the richness of this organization. Now you might say, well, this is The Sims Online, so what, you, what could they possibly do? In the early days of The Sims Online, there were these reputational markers. So if you were a friend of mine, I could give you a green link. If you were an enemy or if you were somebody that caused trouble, I could give you a red link. Um, now, if someone opens your your reputational history, right? So click on you, what is his reputation? You might see the green links, you might see the red links. Right? What the Sim Shadow government could do is to target somebody as a troublemaker and then enlist hundreds of foot soldiers in the mission of red tagging this person so that if you opened up the reputational history for the person, you would find dozens of red links for the person like in the screenshot I'm showing you here. Um, now that's that's a pretty effective way, right? Because it means that if you're going to do business with somebody in a virtual world, you might first open up their reputational page, and if you see a page like this, uh, you might think twice about doing business. Second Life has its share of virtual paramilitary organizations. Uh, my favorite one is the Justice League Unlimited, which uh, basically took their MO from comic book characters, right? So they assume the identities of certain comic book characters and they their stated mission in Second Life is to fight griefing organizations or griefers like the W Hats or people that are giving trouble to newbies inside the world. Now, question. Uh, you have these virtual paramilitary organizations in there, but is that really where conflict resolution is going to end up? I mean, and what is what does a virtual paramilitary conflict resolution actually look like? So what I don't do is what I want to do is give you an example of a full-on sort of paramilitary conflict resolution case, and then a much simpler, smaller one. And I'm going to uh, the idea will be that this sort of simpler, smaller one is is maybe more instructive for us. Because the first case, the sort of full-blown one, kind of shows that um, just sort of going at this in the, the straight-out paramilitary way is not going to be effective in the end. Uh, so I'll call this a dispute resolution via, uh, via cyber war. It involves a character in Second Life by the name of One Song. And if, if you look at the screenshot there, One Song is the guy in white. Um, now, um, the guy to his, uh, well, to our right in black is his business partner, or was his part business partner, Tank Levy. 
One song is a kind of uh, seedy character. He ran a brothel inside of Second Life. I say brothel, meaning he basically offered uh, cyber sex with his dancers. And here I've indicated where he's he's posted the prices for different kinds of um, cyber sex. Now, the basic deal with One Song and Tank Levy was that they wanted to establish a mall, a shopping mall inside Second Life, but what they didn't know is that they were attempting to build it in the region right next to the Jesse region where all those World War II online guys were. And the World War II online guys wanted none of this because one song was a degenerate to them uh, and his mall was just going to bring in lots of Gorians and other degenerates. So they built a giant wall saying, you know, beware of everything, etc. And one song uh, was not pleased with this. And I actually caught this sort of confrontation between him and the World War II online guys. So uh, this dispute eventually escalated to the point where uh, it seemed that one song was actually going to attempt an attack on Jesse at some point. And I was there at that point. There the, uh, they're standing uh, at the barricades. Uh, way up in the upper right corner, you might see that that flying moose up there. Here's the close-up of it. Yeah, it's a, as far as I know, this is the first fully armed flying mechanical moose uh, that's ever appeared anywhere in a virtual world or the real world. But it was scripted by a group of individuals uh, known as the Tech Soul Engineers, which were allies of the World War II online guys. Uh, here's uh, some more uh, uh, people at the barricades while the moose is out there standing point. That's Pancake Striker on the left. We'll come back to her. And then I have Grand Admiral Carl Fredericks uh, there as well. And then eventually one song showed up and he started berating everybody. Uh, as it turns out, one song, one song was actually a very good computer programmer, a good scripter, as we say. And he had scripted some... Uh, tools that made him invulnerable to the weapons of the people in Jesse. Uh, they were not happy about this, actually, because basically he had made himself uh, invulnerable to their weapons. Uh, that first confrontation died down a little bit, but then there was a weird kind of conflict between One Song and his business partner, Tank Levy. Uh, One Song called me to his uh, club and just announced Tank Levy was fired. Uh, and he was permanently banned from my from my club. And then as one song says, you know, I did all that land barren work for nothing. Uh, we, I later caught up with Tank Levy to get his side of the story. There he is on the side of the future mall, all disconsolate about this. Well, now, while that dispute is going in the background, then the dispute between one song and the World War II online guys flared up again. And one song decided that the appropriate response to that was to attack their headquarters, which happened to be a scale model of the Reichstag. You'll notice that he also put his the flag for his, uh, his syndicate up there, which he called the Associates. And that's one song torching the Reichstag, uh, wearing his uh, golden battle suit. Here's a close-up of his golden battle suit. For those of you uh, that remember that sort of evokes memories of an earlier torching of the Reichstag and the flag raising of one song's flag sort of reminded me of this a little bit. Um, anyway, uh, that was a kind of slap to the World War II onliners, but they got their revenge. Uh, 
Here, one of their members, Cyanide Leviathan, came into One Song's club and shot it up. And a couple days later, I was called to the region right next to the region where One Song lived. And uh, the whole region was offline. And uh, one of the Texol engineers was there. And I said, what's going on here? And uh, he said, I don't know. Maybe it had to do with my invisible, physical, hollow, twisted, cut, advanced, cut, tori doing math equations. In effect, what this guy had done, what this ally of the World War II onliners had done, is he had like created objects that were so intensive computationally that they basically took the entire region of the game offline. Now, let's not forget about our subplot with Tank Levy. Tank Levy's dreams of running a mall were dashed, but uh, he decided that instead of a mall, he would open up a club, Club Ecstasy. And uh, here's a picture of him on opening day, very proud of his, his club. So it looks like uh, he came out okay in this, or possibly not, uh, because the next day the entire region where his club was was wiped clean of everything. And what one song had done is he'd made hundreds of little tiny, tiny objects that were all doing heavy computations, and he seeded the area where the club was, where Tank's club was, with these objects. And there was no way to find them all. They were just like little tiny microscopic things doing computations. So Tank had to completely wipe out the area. Now you might think, at this point, this is no way to get anywhere. And this is why I want to close with another dispute that also happened in the Jesse region. You might remember Pancake Striker manning the barricades in Jesse. Uh, she got into a dispute one day with a guy by the name of uh, Falcon. And uh, Falcon had created a, uh, a weapon, a big gun, that would target her automatically every time she came in the region. So now the issue is, what does Pancake do, right? Does she go to the Lindens, or is there another way out, okay? Now, going to the Lindens, which she, she actually did try and do, it was not productive at all. But there was a kind of leader, a uh, village elder of Jesse, as it were, by the, guy, uh, by the name of Chauncey Crash, and that's him with the, the, the gun there and his hand raised. And Chauncey's point in all of this was, look, Pancake, don't go to the Lindens, because that's not how we solve disputes here. Don't go to the Greek gods. What we want to do is talk about it calmly. And um, eventually, that's the solution that actually worked out here. I mean, she did, Pancake went to the Lindens originally, it went nowhere, so what do you do? You sit down and talk about it. And that model, right, not some big fancy governance thing, but that model of having like a village elder that you go to to resolve your disputes, that's the kind of dispute mechanism, that's the kind of dispute resolution mechanism that I see over and over in virtual places. And I think that's the place where you want to focus your attention. And eventually these kinds of mechanisms are going to, to you know, grow into sort of you know, actual courts and so forth. Right? But we have to understand that these things are coming out because naturally people get into disputes, not just with griefers, but with each other, even over business matters. It's going to be necessary to go to people that both parties trust to sit down, work out the problems, etc. So what's exciting to me about all of this is that if you sort of sit back and just focus on the social aspect of virtual worlds 
and just think about where the disputes are really happening and where they're really being solved. And once you focus on them, then you have like a little laboratory in which you can watch these things emerge and then watch how they grow and how they coalesce and how people take these dispute mechanisms on. It's a fascinating, fascinating topic. And any of you who decide to go into a virtual world like Second Life, all I can say is just, you know, keep an eye on the disputes and the drama in there, but also keep an eye on how it's resolved, because I think, I think you'll learn an awful lot from that. Thanks a lot.